and now it only took me like six minutes the last shave. Oh. Well, when you use an electric razor, it takes one minute, and you're just content with the fact that it's not a great shave. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale, solve America's cultural divisions, uh, by talking about how wonderfully clean-shaven David is today. Uh, I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C., but more importantly, my co-host, David Wheel, who's coming to us from Istanbul, is, for the first time we've been recording this show, perfectly clean-shaven. <laughs> and it looks tremendous. David, what is your secret? Oh, man, I am a... I'm a proselytizer now for straight razors. And people who know me will perhaps laugh knowingly at how much of a self-caricature this is. But um, I bought this cheap little plastic, you know, folding straight razor uh, from a blind street merchant on the street here. Um, whom I noticed because a cat was, uh, like lounging on his little cart. And I was so delighted, um, that, you know, I did a double take and saw that he was selling these, um, sort of, you know, this sort of old fashioned barber straight razor thing, but with a little modern touch that makes it extremely cheap. And now that I've, it took me, you know, it took me three goes um, where I was taking like, you know, 20 minutes to shave myself, but now I got the hang of it and it's like the best shave of my life every day now. So I used to, you know, I used to think that the, that the answer to the problem of facial hair was like a beard, you know, as long as, as your sort of social circumstances would allow you to grow it. Um, but now I am reveling in the joy of, shaving it's it's wonderful and i only have to shave like every two or three days because the second day after i shave it's such a good shave that i still look clean shaven for most of the day so that's why you know despite the the sort of setting evening sun um my room is probably full of light from my gleaming face it is i was going to acknowledge that i did not realize that was the source <laughs> i just assumed it was much earlier in the day yeah yeah. Well, with that, with that aside, I, I fully, you know, I, I, I wish I could send, you know, all of our listener, our listeners, um, business over the way of this kind blind street merchant, but maybe I'll just take orders. And the next time I'm in the U S I'll, you know, I'll mail these little plastic doodads. Start a Patreon and then have that be one of the levels is you get one of those razors. Yeah, but, you know, the old ways sometimes are really the best ways. Hmm. And, um, you know, I mainly I was I, I ended up being partly it was just the annoyance of shaving with a um, I don't like electric razors, but I long tolerated safety razors. But I, I just hated the fact that I was reliant on plastic and that when the razor heads got dull i had to throw it away and i just it felt like i was just wasting so much but now I, I just set up my i put my belt up and i stropped this thing this cheap little um you know extremely cheap little razor uh and i sharpen it 
as I go. And so I've been using, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just wonderful. So total, very efficient, very cheap and better. And the only difference is that it takes a little bit of skill, you know, but you learn the skill and now no one can take that away from me. And it's just cheaper, faster and better. And it's not, it's not faster. It's not faster. It's just about as fast but cheaper and, and significantly better. But the streets are filled with the corpses of people who did not develop the skill quickly enough. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it does. Uh, I've seen Sweeney Todd. I know how it goes. Right. And even, you know, when you're shaving your neck, like the, the visual as you look into the mirror at yourself is a visual that appears to be that you're about to kill yourself. And so it's quite bizarre and there's, I mean, I still haven't gotten used to that visual. Um, but you know, then you just don't kill yourself. You just shave the hair off your neck and it's really quite wonderful. No. Well, I will bear that in mind. So that's the end of my public service announcement. And then I will keep using my electric razor because I don't really care what kind of shave I get. <laughs> yeah. Well. I just want it to take less than a minute. Yeah. That's yeah. Speaking of people who care about the results of the actions they're undertaking, we had several airstrikes into Syria recently, uh, which I – every time – so the last time that we made airstrikes in Syria. People, I mean, before, b yeah. before you go too far into the details, I just want to point out what a great segue that was Why, because of the, the analogous phrase from – you know, this recent, these decades of war that we are engaged in of um, counter-terror missions referred to as mowing the grass. Yes. Where you know, the grass just, is, what, what feeds the grass, the blood. And then what feeds the grass, the blood, exactly. Yeah. Um, this phrase from this beautiful essay in the Times from yesterday, yeah. Phil Clay, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Right. Habitual, regular seemingly unending and one well, might was, think perhaps there's a better way to go about this if right. we are engaged in something as monotonous and banal but devastating as you know right. as this war but anyway, there's, there's also the, the the poem the grass which um i don't know if you're familiar with that one but it's about how the grass covers everything and it cites a lot of the famous battlefields and how what's now there is the grass growing over the bodies mm. um, I'm not familiar with that but well, I'll look it up yeah that is I feel horrible that I just forgot who the author was um, it appears to be could it be Carl Sandberg yes that sounds right um, yes it is it is it's it's grass by Carl Sandberg okay um, so yeah, that's uh, that analogy has has been around for a while. Yeah, um, there you go. And, if, and yeah, it's. I remember last year when they made the first strikes into Syria, and Trump's approval rating went up, and people were talking about how, oh, you know, Obama never did anything with this, and now finally Trump is doing something with this, and then a few days later. There were stories about, okay, the airstrip they attacked is already functioning again. And nothing happened, and there was no follow-up. And it was almost the parody of U.S. Uh, foreign policy in areas like this where, I mean, I remember going back to 
the Clinton administration, I have memories of people talking about how we would just shoot a few missiles into a problem area and declare that we'd done something. And then we wouldn't approach back to it. I think I have a recollection of when Clinton ordered the strikes into um, a couple of places, in I think it was the Sudan, and um, of, and, and the Sudanese government was claiming they were just you know normal pharmaceutical factories. Uh, but at the time, a lot of people were immediately saying, oh, he's just doing this to distract from the impeachment scandal. And now here we are 20 years later um, with a situation where a lot of people are saying, oh, he's distracting from whatever by just lobbing a few missiles in without making a real commitment to it. And uh, I think Fox and Friends had actually had some saying where they was like, oh, Trump is so brilliant. He's distracted from these things by launching missiles. Um, because Fox News is a caricature of itself. Right. Uh, so, I don't know. David, what's your take on the serious strike so far? Are we actually doing anything here, or is this the caricature of Americans just lobbing some missiles and then forgetting about it? Right. Yeah, I think um, it's a good reference. The I forget the name of the uh, facility, but you know, this scandal that... Um, you know, Noam Chomsky, I think, still describes as a as a war crime. Um, so, you know, so the Chomsky, um, you know, the Intercept crowd, uh, Glenn Greenwald, these types of people, uh, you know, focus on that as a real um, war crime against the Sudanese people, because indeed it was just a pharmaceutical facility, and it speaking objectively, probably did, you know, end up uh, leading to the premature deaths of a lot of innocent people because uh, they, you know, bombed this crucial infrastructure in a very poor country. Um, and so the fact that, you know, here we are 20 years later with such analogous um, events in the news is is quite disheartening. But... Um, you know, moments like this just reveal such such a depth of pathology in the way that people on all sides of whatever s combination of political spectra uh, talk about this stuff. Because it's like, okay, this horrific chemical weapon attack is recorded. People around the world see it. We aren't supposed to use chemical weapons, and people are not supposed to use chemical weapons at all. Governments maintain capacities for chemical weapons use as well as defense because that's what governments, specifically militaries, have to prepare for. They have to prepare for the worst. So we have these capacities, but we're never supposed to use them. Assad is using them on his own people. So what is, what is there to do? You know, what does one do? Um, some people say <laughs> there's a, you said something like, um, you know, the way you just phrased one of the things you said just now was, you know, Oh, here's Trump. Um, you know, uh, launching these missiles without a follow-up plan, you know, without, without really committing to it. 
I think the most vicious, the, the most vigorous attacks of the um, military action are, you know, not based on the idea that it's not committed enough. You know, the the most right. vigorous attacks are coming from this kind of internationalist <laughs> left saying um, it's illegal. You know, there's no authorization for it under American or international law. And um, it's neo-imperialism. It's totally illegitimate. And that's, and that's not even getting into the sort of conspiracy theory left who say, uh, you know, this is a false flag. It's a fake right. event that, you know, the American imperialists are, are provoking in order to invade another Arab country. Um, not, getting in, not even getting into that. There's a good argument, you know, that it's not covered under the extant authorization for the use of military force passed by the Congress. There's a good argument for that. Um, there's a good argument that, you know, it's not, um, sanctioned under international law, but <laughs> there's still the question, what do you do when this kind of brutality is exercised in the plain view of the international community? And so that leads to the next sort of charge that I've seen a lot of people make of like, you know, uh, if America really cared we wouldn't draw this distinction between conventional weapons and chemical weapons. And that's also a fair point, but it's like, okay, if the objections that one makes to a particular policy are, this is bad because it's not enough, therefore we should do nothing, that doesn't strike me as a legitimate complaint. Um, you know, you have to draw a line somewhere and the whole story of civilization, the whole story of all human endeavor, it, you know, whether it's your family, you know, or a local community or international relations is that, um, we engage in these incremental processes and, the war in Syria is um, is a is a catastrophic mess that the Syrian people have been suffering for far too long, and you know a signal that chemical weapons are one step too far is probably not you know in my view. So I'm just putting my cards on the table. Probably not a bad thing. You know, probably not a bad thing for Syria and probably not a bad thing for the world. Now, the question is, back to what you were saying before, um, you know, does it actually do anything? It, does it mean anything? You know, Trump did this a year ago. Clinton uh, engaged in, let's just say, an analogous uh, operation uh, 20 years ago. You know, does American power actually result in any meaningful change for anyone when it's just this kind of press a button, blow some things up, particularly after telegraphing, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to strike you. So you'd better move all your planes to the Russian airfields that we're not going to attack. Um, you know, you'd better send all your troops home so that they're not in the barracks and so no one, you know, so there, there's no significant degradation of the, of the regime's military power. 
Yeah, that's a that's a different question, but the the question of whether it was effective is one set of questions, and then the the bigger question of was it legitimate, you know, entails another set of questions. And people are obviously people are like mixing them up. Uh, right. It's hard and it's hard to keep them straight. So, yeah, but. Anyway, is that, it, I mean, it's sorry, true, I and I keep... think that my my framing of the situation does sort of show a little bit about my thinking compared to everyone else's, which is that I always view the, these sorts of strikes as, all right, what's the follow-up plan? Are we committing to this? Are we doing something here? Or are we just doing what we've done before where we refuse to commit and don't really have much impact on anything? And that's yeah. that's that's my framing when I look at a lot of this stuff. And I'm not somebody who is pro-war, uh, you know, in, obviously in a general context, most people would not say that they are. But, uh, you know, I was opposed to the Iraq war starting when so many people were in favor of it. So my natural inclination is to not want to go to war places. But I do have this view reflected from my view of history, which is that uh, you need to commit when you're ready for something like this and sitting back and lobbing a few missiles. I don't, especially as you said, the way we're doing it, where we warn them in advance, they can minimize the consequences to it. Or the last time when the, the airstrip was working again within a few days. I mean, what's right. the point? Um, what are you, uh, uh, it's just like you shouldn't make empty threats. You shouldn't make sort of empty attacks in the sense that, if you say there will be consequences for this action, and then the consequences that we launch a few missiles that have an impact, sure, but relatively little impact, I mean, what is that really doing as a deterrent? It's not like Assad's going to go, oh, well, my use of chemical weapons and my slaughtering of my own civilians, I clearly shouldn't have done it because they damaged this airstrip for a few days. Right. And then he's not going to trust the next threat. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the... Um... There's a there's a there's a good question of whether prestige and credibility matter as much as some beltway pundit people claim that it matters. You know, we have to we have to do this because our allies expect it, and in order to maintain a, you know credibility in front of our allies, we have to take this particular action, whether it's the Syria thing or anything else. You know, we have to maintain deterrence against our enemies and in order to maintain deterrence we have to be you know deterrence also requires credibility so we must take xyz policy action to in order to maintain credibility it's intuitive but scholars debate hmm. you know how um, how significant it really is um but this seems like the word like whether you believe it or not this kind of action just seems perfectly tailored to make a small group of Americans feel like something was done right? without caring at all about the effect on the ground. As you said, which in my mind, you know, I think probably credibility does matter in a certain way. Part of the problem is that in the last 20 years, American, I mean, it's like, it's like quite obvious that America is not collectively as a government or society 
capable of committing to really make a difference in the rest of the world on these big political problems, militarily at least, that, you know, there's an appetite for it in some sectors, but not in others. And because of our divided society, uh, these limited wars get whipsawed this way and that based on news cycle and electoral cycles. And it seems like, you know, our enemies and friends have learned that lesson very well. And this seems like the latest example of um, the sort of perverse implications of that, where it's like, we showed them a lesson, you know, and then gets the generals to come out and say, uh, we showed them a real lesson. You know, they will think hard about their actions in the future. And almost certainly, I mean, just from reporting, you know, allegedly the Russians are delighted that they, you know, that the strikes were as limited as they were. Um, and so we've, you know, by, it sort of gets to your point, is that by striking in this way, we undermine our own deterrent credibility because if we didn't strike, then at least there's the sort of question of, okay, if America's military is sent to do something, maybe it will be really bad for us. You know, but when we just send a few missiles and it's like, and we've signaled that we are going to be satisfied by just blowing some empty buildings up or putting craters in a runway that can just be filled with asphalt or, you know, in concrete and repair it to normal within a few hours, then we're undermining our own deterrent capability, which is, um, which I think is what happened here. Right. I, I mean, it makes Trump look like the, it's a caricature of the Trump that we've been talking about, which yeah. is the petulant child who launches out at something that's slightly ineffective, but it's really more an expression of his rage or his childishness than it is of anything that accomplishes a goal. Yeah. Um, although to be fair, I did, you know, I have mentioned that this has been an ongoing problem for the U.S. It's not something that's unique to Trump that we will um, suddenly launch strikes that are not that effective. Although I have noticed that in Trump's case, both of the strikes were really precipitated by him hearing about a particular attack that was particularly bad. Um, yeah. I don't recall Obama or George W. Bush being... Um, particularly prompted by individual events quite the way Trump seems to be. It's almost as though Trump isn't paying attention until he sees a big news story about children hurt in a chemical attack, and that makes him mad, and then he attacks, and all the horrible stuff that goes on in between, he's just not noticing. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to blame Trump for that in the way that I think you just were, because... Um, the, um, you know, the chemical attack that Obama didn't respond to, um, you know, the, the whole, that whole question of red lines in 2013 and, um, this deal that Kerry was sent to negotiate that quote unquote eliminated, you know, the government's Assad regime's stockpiles of weapons. I mean, this is clearly... Um, a, a you know a reactive um, 
uh, a set of policies that even though it didn't result in a strike, the impetus to make the strike uh, was also the result of a single news event, you know, piercing through the kind of general din of barrel bombs and unremarkable atrocities that uh, theoretically should be just as much of a spur to action as this, you know, as this other um, source of death. It's like, you know, once the person's dead, it doesn't care, you know, they don't care whether they were killed by a bullet or a machete or an explosive or a nerve attack, you know, nerve agent. Um, but so I, so I don't know if, you know, I don't, I don't know if uh, it's, fair to suggest that Trump is uniquely um, motivated by his gut in this. It's just that his reaction to the news triggers a process to respond. And the, you know, the news item triggering the process to respond is the same for all presidents. It's just that Trump's process after the trigger is probably uniquely um, shallow and and sort of uh, impulsive. Right, and you know, I'll give you, I'll give you that. Once again, to be fair, I uh, I because I, I sort of fault Obama for the exact opposite thing, which is that I mean, in my mind, if you set red lines, you have to follow them. I mean, you've said some people debate whether credibility is all that relevant, but. You know, Obama setting that red line and then just completely ignoring it and trying to take the first out he could when suddenly the Russians said, oh, what if we help you broker something here? And John Kerry says, OK, yes, we'll get in on that. And then Obama just sort of had that clear look of relief that he wouldn't mm -hmm. have to go through with this. But it didn't solve any of the problems. And I mean, how many tens of thousands of Syrian civilians have been horribly murdered since then? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is it's a it's a really pernicious problem obviously the war in syria is just a tremendously pernicious problem but it's also the case that it's not clear that solving that problem is when I, when I, okay i'm gonna finish my sentence my sentence was it's not clear that solving that problem is possible at an acceptable cost to america or the west um so what does that mean? It means that the cost of direct, you know, all these lives lost, all these refugees, the destabilizing effect of the refugees in the countries they're going to, you know, these are very high costs, but it's not clear in the sense of obvious before, you know, making a case that, um, that even those very high costs would be enough to justify, you know, preventing those, those costs would be um, worthwhile given the, given what it would take to actually do anything to put out the, the fire as it were. Right. Um, you know, given the way that proxy wars work, given the fact that America doesn't have the capacity to just snap its fingers and put things to right. Um, and 
you know, if we wanted to, if we were willing to, it would entail, you know, uh, a higher than Iraq level of mobilization, um, potentially, you know, in order to do it in a way that would um, make the problem any better than it is now. So, so, you know, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I can't change what I said, you know, I was pro, um, you know, I, I was supporting a more robust, immediate uh, move in the beginning of the Syrian civil war to make it clear that Assad was going to go the way of Gaddafi. Um, that's what I wanted. You know, that's what I believed then was the right thing to do. Um, but obviously Obama chose a different path. I think though, that he did not choose, you know, it's not like limp wristed. He just, he just decided, look, you know, they gave me the Nobel prize. Nevertheless, I'm the American president and Syrian blood is not worth as much as American blood. And so we're not going to get involved in, you know, we're, we're not going to get involved above the minimum capacity to try to support the rebels just enough to keep them in the field and pursue certain, you know, of our objectives. But you know, after Iraq, we're just not going to get involved in, you know, Iraq 2.0. Um, and that's pretty brutal. I mean, it's, it's, it's the opposite of the like cowardly, weak, sort of ineffective, um, caricature of, of his policy. It's like, you know, it's quite, it's quite ruthless and cruel. Uh, which are not words that are generally applied to Obama, but it's not, it's not obvious. Again, you have to make the case. You have to argue that it was the wrong policy because, you know, it's in, it's inhuman. It's cruel. It's ruthless. It's awful. Um, but the situation that we're in is all of those things. The situation that we would be in if, you know, American forces were more directly involved would be all of those things. And Americans would be dying. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's a, it's just, a, it's a depressing world we live in. What can I, what can I say? I, I certainly agree with that. And of course, as David says that it is a depressing world we're living in, he reached over and turned on a light and uh, to compensate for the setting sun outside his window that had caused him to become progressively darker throughout the course of this conversation maybe so my think, mood will will be well it is better to this. light a candle than curse the darkness sir <laughs> yeah. and that you have done that's a good yeah, nice nice but that's also just a i'll take that as a segue to go back to the um my sort of beginning to defend the or like beginning to, to sketch out how a defense of the trump airstrike might be made, which is that it's a step in the direction of setting a precedent or upholding the precedent that chemical weapons should not be used against civilians. That's a good precedent. So to some extent, any step in that direction, no matter how ineffectual, is 
a good thing because it is at least in some way serving to establish that precedent. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, there's this, there's this meme that I've seen far too many times on social media over the past week, which is, um, Amber, someone or other, it's like, it's one of these like onion, you know how onion has like right these nine sort of citizens. Oh, that they always use in their cycle. That they always points. use yeah. to say these crazy things. So it's sort of like that. It's like, you know, here's Amber from wherever. And, you know, Amber, what are your thoughts on the, the strike against Assad? And she says something like, I'm just glad that the Syrian Air Force didn't bomb us for poisoning the children of Flint, Michigan. Or, <laughs> or, or, or using gas on the protesters at Standing Rock. Um, and I find that sort of statement to be so phenomenally stupid. I agree. That it is infuriating. Because Standing Rock, is it was great the protesters... You know, there was, there, was amazing, there was amazing reporting done of the way that the local, not even local, the sort of, you know, Native American peoples uh, from across the U.S. were sort of resurrected um, by their, you know, communities were sort of resurrected by their activism on this issue where they said, you know, we won't be erased from this country. You know, this is our land. You can't do this to us. Um, and the way that people were um, motivated to join that, you know, it's it's quite inspiring from a perspective of people engaging in active citizenship and, you know, enforcing their, you know, forcing their voice, you know, into the, the public consciousness. I am, you know, I was following that. I, you know, I, I supported that. Standing Rock was a good thing. Flint, total disaster, you know, catastrophe that we are so callous towards, you know, the basic services that, um, people of our country, you know, should be able to rely on that are cut from under them by, you know, these callous politicians who don't believe that government should function at all. Um, but to equate that with Assad <laughs> trying to terrorize and destroy the will of his own countrymen by dropping bombs on them is just phenomenally, grossly idiotic. And it relies on this notion that, you know, oh, we in America should be glad that Assad didn't bomb us, you know, that the Syrians didn't bomb us. It's like, because America and Syria are the same, right? Like, America is obviously, you know, one of the, I mean, it's obviously the premier global power in the world. And to pretend that all countries are the same and that, you know, oh, if we did this thing, then, oh, we should just be glad that these other countries aren't doing that thing to us is making the mistake of taking the goal and value of the United Nations where theoretically all the countries in the world have an equal seat at the table and an equal ability to voice their concerns and vote 
on matters concerning the world, which is a remarkable achievement in the history of the human race, you know, as our dear Paul Kennedy uh, describes in his book, The Parliament of Man. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing achievement, despite all of its flaws. But to confuse the norm and the, the pursuit of a world in which, you know, all countries would be treated equally with the reality of America standing head and shoulders above any other country in the world in terms of its capacity to achieve things on the global stage um, is just insanity. It's just dumb. It's like, yes, I agree with you. We should be moving towards a world in which international law works and it binds everyone in the same way that laws should be applied equally to everyone in within a society. And, you know, we all agree. And, you know, the democracy is important and individuals should all be, I'm going to make an analogy here that like all countries are not the same yet we can pursue a world in which, you know, countries are treated in a certain way of equality. And there's an analogy there to democratic systems where like people are not exactly the same to everyone, you know, to, to one another. Um, you know, someone might, one person might have a very sophisticated explanation for every political decision, every, you know, rally they attend, every politician they support, every vote they take, every dollar they donate. And someone else might, you know, be responding to like reality TV shows that they watch or the voices in their head or, you know, uh, or just have no idea and not participate. But to, to pretend that that difference is not there because of a commitment to the norm of equal protection before the law, you know, and one person, one vote is just to make a, a mistake. It's just to make an intellectual error because we can acknowledge the difference. And in fact, it helps to acknowledge the difference because it makes the moral commitment and the political commitment to creating a society in which people are treated equally and in which all individuals are granted the dignity and respect that they deserve as human beings holds. I mean, it, it makes that, it makes that commitment clearer to acknowledge that no two people are the same as, as one another, you know? And, um, I don't know. That's what, some, sometimes it's very bad to make these kinds of analogies of like the country and think about countries on the international level and think about sort of intuitive things about, um, personalizing those dynamics. But I think this one makes sense. I, if I was able I, to explain myself. That did not go the direction I thought it was going to go. I thought you were going to mostly be concerned about the stupidity of the actual elements of the comparison, which is to say that, you know, what happened in Flint was a tragedy and it was to some extent foreseeable from poor decisions, but it wasn't an intentional poisoning of the people. Or that what happened at Standing Rock was not the use of chlorine gas. Uh, 
I thought you were going to go on about how that was it was stupid to equate the atrocities committed by Assad with mistakes or heavy handedness on our part on some situations. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that should go without saying. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But I was, I mean, I, I would hope that that would go without saying. That's that true. It's, it's like obviously absurd, but then, you know, it triggers the, that was like the low hanging fruit. So well, I, yeah, that's, that's I'm why glad I was you got the low hanging fruit. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good point, I guess. Uh, you know, that is, that is something where we expect our listeners to be able to make that sort of, be, be aware of that sort of problem without us having to get into that. Yeah. But did, did, did what I actually did the point I make make any sense? I mean, Some of it did, although I imagine a lot of people would um, hear that. People who don't already agree with us would probably hear that and not feel like there's enough of a reason for why the U.S. Um, should get to be treated differently to some extent. Um, I was also a little surprised that in your discussion of the United Nations, you did not bring up the Security Council. Which right. well, is a codification yeah, yeah. of that. So, right. Like it's actually there in the rules that these five countries get to be better than everyone else. And some of them are just legacied in at this point. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, right. And it, that's, a, that's a very good follow-up. Um, I, I stopped myself because I wanted to make sure that like I wasn't completely going off into my own head and that I was articulating an idea that that made some amount of sense to when other I go people. back and edit this I'll have a much better idea of whether it made sense <laughs> okay well we can hope but you know but 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 that mentioning the Security Council is a very good point and I think it goes you know it goes into what I meant uh, to say which is that there are good arguments about expanding the Security Council. Um, as you said, you know, at this point, the UK, it's like a joke that the UK is on the Security Council, other than the fact that it has nuclear weapons along with um, France. I mean, that, you know, the, the idea of like countries that have nuclear weapons being on the Security Council makes sense on its own terms in some way, but... Um, Wait, but then you have to put North Korea on. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, sanction, you know, acceptable uh, sort of nuclear weapons covered by the oh, okay. international consensus. Obviously, they would not be on the list. But like, OK, not North Korea, but India. Like, right. That's a quite a big and powerful and rich and growing country not to be, you know, on the Security Council, given that, um, <laughs> you know, given that uh, France and Britain are on there. Um, there, are good, there are good arguments to be made for expanding the Security Council, but it would behoove those arguments to accept the reality of the Security Council, you know, right? Rather yeah. than just saying, like, there should be no Security Council, all countries should be the same, there should be no war, there should be no death, there should be no misery, there should be no sadness. Like, you know, it, it, ser it, it serves to be a little bit realistic about the status of the world that we're in and the mechanisms that have been put forward to move us towards a better future. I mean, going back to my point about incrementalism. Right. And, you know, the other interesting part about the Security Council is Russia being there is also sort of an artifact of the times in which it was created. When you look yeah. at Russia now, you know, 
people may be given a, an impression of, of Russia that is not entirely accurate based on how involved it's been in everything lately in the U.S. news. Right. But the thing about Russia is that its, its role now is not that of superpower, it's that of troublemaker. And, right. uh, you know, if you want to talk about the relative powers of China and Russia compared to the sorts of press that they receive, I mean, China doesn't it, China doesn't project power yet because it just it that's just not what it's doing right now. It well, doesn't they don't quite have the, power in the same way. Right. Not in the same way, certainly. And whereas Russia has been using its hybrid war methods to cause trouble, it doesn't really produce anything for Russia. Russia's not really getting any better because of the stuff it's doing. In fact, right. to a large extent, it's getting progressively worse. But Russia's power is to essentially just go around destroying things and making things worse. And it, that's what it's been using its veto power for. Right. Yeah, Stephen Kotkin has a great uh, take on, you know, what Russia has gained from its... Um, revanchism over the past you know five years that um you know the people in washington in particular love to talk about uh putin as this master chess strategist right. you know who's, who's just outfoxing the americans at every at every turn and it's like okay what okay let's look at 10 years ago and let's look at now you know what's the difference well not even 10 years ago you know five years ago uh what's what's the difference putin has syria as a slavish you know client which he had before right but now it's a commitment that's actually drawing on russian resources okay so that's worse you know they have crimea. and then when yeah and he has crimea which he already had before you know the, the russian navy had a base there <laughs> they had the access to the to the port. Now they have a Crimea where, and this is I'm, I'm going now on you know entirely off of um, Kotkin's take that uh, you know, the only economy in the Crimea was the Russian base and tourism, mm -hmm. and now there's no tourism, so it's just this gaping hole uh, in you know in the Russian economy that they have to pour money into because fundamentally you know military the defense expenditures are not productive. You know, they're they're at best kind of an insurance policy, um, you know. But those jobs are not good jobs. You're going back to the military industrial complex speech. You know, every in the final analysis, every you know missile that is fired, every tank that's built is food that's not being you know fed to children and shoes that are not being put on their feet. Um, so you know, Putin has gained the ability to strut, but, you know, when you actually think about the productive cap capacity that his um, efforts have allowed Russia to sort of take over, you know, these are negative assets. Yes, but Putin Putin's goal is to strut. It is to reclaim right. the one might say honor that was lost when the Soviet Union collapsed. And perhaps of the three things he might be using as a prompt for war, honor is the one that he cares about. Right. Because, I mean, the, these things go together. And, um, you know, the interest that Putin has is fundamentally of maintaining his power and ability to extract rents within Russia. So 
doesn't really matter. I mean, what matters is his ability to use honor and fear to um, maintain that base of support that allows him to cling to power in that country. Yeah, clearly, clearly true. Yes. And so on that depressing note, um, I think we'll go to the sign-off for tonight's episode, which is a story that we recorded earlier of David helping some kittens. Oh! I hope that will make everybody feel so much lighter and happier after this grim discussion. <laughs> so we'll see you ideally next week, and now we'll go to David's story. Wait, it's a kitty with kitties. It's a kitty with kitties, yeah. Is that yours? It's it's sort of ours now. Oh, one of the famous Istanbul street cats. One of the famous Istanbul street cats. And um so it it's been like coming uh you know, it's been hanging out by uh in the garden. It like comes around and, you know. I have so for the last like several weeks even let's say the last month um it's been coming around and i've been feeding it chicken oh so cute yeah and um it came around and actually had this like pregnancy buddy that it lay on the mat with which you're about to see the most amazing photograph in your entire life all right i'm prepared Aww, kitty. It might not be, it might not have, um, sort of, yeah, no, it's the The cat that's there for emotional support? That's the cat, well, they're both pregnant. Oh, they're both pregnant. They're both pregnant. Aww. It's amazing, and I have several in that, in that, um, I wish I had a kitty. In that vein. Um, and anyway, so the, uh, tabby one stayed and I guess the calico would call it sort of yeah. very light calico. Like a pastel calico. Yeah. Um, that one went off somewhere else and then the, this one, uh, stayed and gave birth like three days ago. Um, and one of its kittens was born like very weak and couldn't, um, make its way back to the, um, where the mother was hmm. and it ended up like sort of falling off the mat, um, where the mother had brought the other kittens and fell onto the, like the cold concrete, uh, you know, paving outside the door. And we found it that way when we got, when we were having breakfast and it wasn't moving. We, we assumed it was dead because it, the mother had like groomed the other kittens and they were all like nice and fluffy and, uh, were feeding or nursing. And this other one was like still wet for with after, with like the, you know, birth fluid and, um, was like, you know, muffed, you know, mushed onto the ground. They're like, Oh man, that's gross. Yeah, I guess I gotta like grab it and do something with it so it doesn't, you know, make a mess. But then as we were doing that, it sort of like, it sort of very slightly moved. Um, but it couldn't, it couldn't like advocate for itself, you know, oh. and fight its, 
littermates for access to the to the nipple and the mother was too weak at that point to like pay attention to it if it wasn't gonna sort of make the noises and everything so um we uh we brought it inside Aww. and nursed it kittens are a surprising amount of work when they're just born if you're not well, what, was, what was amazing was we just sort of did that, and then it um, we were able to put like five milliliters of warm milk into it. Hmm. At which point, it was able to it was starting moving around and and chirping. Oh. And so I thought, okay, before any more time passes, now it's going to be able to make enough noise to get its mother to notice it. So we can, you know, either, the mother will either notice it and be like, "You're not my baby anymore." In which case, you know, now we know what we have to do. Or, you know, would notice it and be like, hey, come back here. Here's another nipple, you know. And so, uh, fortunately, it was the latter. And uh, so now they're all, now they're all happily nursing. But it was very, it's like a <sighs> great satisfaction that, that I saved the life. Oh, that is adorable. Um I, my, my sister used to foster kittens that were rejected by their mothers mm. and I heard it was a tremendous amount of work mm. um, because there's just so much that they cannot do for themselves early on. Right. We're so used to only thinking of humans as the species that like is completely helpless when it's born. Right. But it's apparently the, kittens are close. Well, it's that like, you know, mammals are completely yeah. helpless when they're born for a certain period of time yeah. and humans it's like that time is it's like you know five years five so. years yeah exactly. or like eight you know yeah um, i have no idea how kids work yeah i mean it's sort of i guess you know if they're old enough to work in a mine i guess oh, they're you know so like I guess four not yeah. yeah yeah well that's 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 certainly true um and so this is why we have so many kids who are pro-Trump, because he's bringing back all the mining jobs for kids. Right. Right. In fact, yeah, I could almost I mean. imagine a Trump campaign doing an ad about, like, excited kids going to work in the mines that are reopened. Yeah, that's why the, the leftists only want to reduce the voting age to 16 and not 8, because all the 8-year-olds are... Right. You know the value Trump. of a hard day's work before they've become uh just you know they've just become complacent and just want to rest at the government's teat right like that little kitten yeah i bet i bet i bet trump would be, have like a, a lock on the like six-year-old vote it's true they share a lot of interests well there's there's an age range where i think he'd be successful where it's that point where kids are still total sociopaths before they sort of learn a little bit about, well, that's not fair, and learn that they're supposed to behave better than that. And then before they become, yeah. like, teenagers who, again, don't care and are sociopaths. Yeah. Like, trucks and building and boobs and all very, like, surface and no depth. Yeah. All immediate... Yeah, no. What's great is that all of those Later. words really do just summarize Trump's presidency so far. How many That's times have we seen him in a fire I'm truck saying. pretending to drive? Like, 
That's that is what I'm saying. The man is afraid of stairs, but he'll climb up yeah. into a fire truck. 